Hello, lovelies, and welcome back to another episode of Confession of a PYP Teacher. My name is Lou Gerlock with Think Chat, and welcome to Confession 115, where we're going to look at a new series on creating a PYP classroom success criteria. Greetings from Brussels, Belgium. I am so fortunate to attend a very bespoke training with Misty Patterson um, on how to pop up studio in our practice and really take it further. I am super excited. We all love to be developed no matter where we are in our inquiry journey. And it's just so wonderful because I'm meeting some people that I've been following on social media myself and getting a chance to engage with them. There's educators from all over in um, all the three major regions um, within the IB. So this is exciting. Um, And so, and to just have some like uninterrupted time with Misty is going to be amazing. I just adore her. And if you've ever had a chance to engage with her, um, I'm sure that you agree. So let's now unpack this piece here, friends, of why are we creating a PYP classroom success criteria? In the past six months, I've led a lot of workshops and done a lot of professional development sessions with um, official IB workshops, independent workshops, and curriculum development. And there seems to be a repeating theme that comes from these encounters posed in a very single question. What does a PYP classroom look and feel like in practice? On the surface, it seems like a very easy question to answer. You have your unit board, your wonder wall. Um, You have, you know, places of meaningful work and all of that. But as you unravel the layers, you discover that there are many parts to making a PYP classroom come to life. And here are two, I would say, main components that I've identified. The first is the actual physical space. Now, When we walk into an authentic PYP school, you learn about culture right away, just simply by looking at the walls. And these are questions that instantly pop into my mind as I'm going into schools um, and looking at their walls. My eyes are just glued constantly. So this is the first thing. What do the work samples reveal about the type of work learners are exploring on a daily basis? So if I see a lot of pre-printed items from teacher paid teachers, I have stuff on teacher paid teachers, but they're not really printables. They're more thought processes. That's different than just throwing up a lot of reproducibles. Now, I am not against reproducibles as long as the learning is extended, right? And so when you're going into the hallways and all you see are pre-printed sheets, what does that say about the samples of thinking and learning that are happening in that classroom? How did the displays represent the cultures, the ethnicities, and the identities of learners from our youngest to our oldest? So how's everyone included in that environment, right? We talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's not just about cultural identity or ethnicity. It's also about gender identity. It's also about 
um, you know, identity for those such as myself that are um, biracial, where do we fit in, all of that, and your language identity, all of that, right? So where, how do we see that all represented? Where do we see language being displayed and celebrated? And that is not just the dominant language or the language of instruction, which oftentimes is English. How do learners show their identity and agency? Hmm, very interesting. And so where a learner is kind of driving the force of what goes up in the shared common spaces. And how do the elements of the PYP naturally happen instead of a laminated checklist that we put up on the wall out of compliance? And having been one of those teachers in the very beginning where I would type out the central idea, the lines of inquiry, because I didn't know better, laminate them, put them up and say, hey, I can use this every year. But as we know, that's a living, breathing thing that can augment year to year. So I stopped doing that um, because I constantly saw that change happened and um, got to that point of saying, mm, we're going to be open-minded here. So the, over the course of this podcast series, I hope to address these questions and more. And the physical environment does matter. It tells the story of what is being valued and by whom. And when I see a lot of worksheets on the wall, I know, quite frankly, I know that inquiry is not happening, which means um, learner agency is also not being modeled or guided. That's just, that's a given. Because inquiry, as we know, inquiry, agency, and action go together. And when we don't have one, we can't really authentically have the other. And when I see a dominant culture represented around the campus, there's a limited opportunity to explore a variety of voices about issues that impact all of humanity. So now I have a question for you and your self-reflection and self-practice. If I were to come into your classroom or your you know, your space that you dwell in tomorrow, what would your walls say about you as a teacher, a counselor, um, some sort of language development or acquisition support teacher, the PYP coordinator, the principal, head of school, um, the office staff, just to name a few? What do the walls that are in your environment say about you? And to this answer this question, I want you to self-evaluate your, your space um, and consider what the walls say. So this is kind of like your checklist as you go through. Whose voice is being showcased in my displays and bulletin boards? Was there any space for my learners? And if you are a school leader, that would be obviously your teachers and your staff. Where's evidence of their thinking up on the walls? And it's not about compliance, right? And how can I invite my learners into the decision-making process? Um, once again, whether it's um, child or adult learners, where's that co-creation happening? So I want you to evaluate yourself. And this isn't a judgment. This is just baseline. And I want you to write down, what do you see? 
Once again, ask yourself these three questions. Whose voice is being showcased in my displays and bulletin boards? Was there any space for my learners? How can I invite my learners into the decision-making process? Reflect on that. Put it down somewhere, whether on a computer, notepad, drawing pad, whatever that might be. And then um, see about ways that you can augment your current reality going through this podcast series, right? That's the hope anyway. And as an educator, I really had to ask these questions to myself on a regular basis, especially when I was tempted to control the narrative about the learning in my classroom. And I'd have to kind of put myself to task and look at my practice. And let's be clear, it's not easy to do this process, especially when you have teammates who have Pinterest-worthy um, learning spaces. It can be intimidating to keep up with them, right? So you don't look like that classroom, the one that looks less pretty or less organized or less professional, whatever that might mean, right? And I had to stop competing at some point. And I had I'll be honest, I had teammates all throughout my career who had beautiful um, Pinterest-worthy classrooms, um, but I wanted, and no judgment there, because, you know, you have to design a space that um, is appeasing or appealing um, to you um, because you're spending most of your day there. But at the same time, I wanted my room to not look perfect but reflect the learning of my learners and also as a teaching tool to guide them into the thinking process. And that can sometimes look messy and that's okay. And I wanted a, you know, not necessarily a beautiful classroom, but one that was authentic. And I think that that is, you know, something that we have to consider. So now that we have, um, thought about the physical space. Now we're going to go into the second part, which is the independent space. You're going to say, what? The independent space? There's something magical about walking into an early years PYP classroom where you see young learners self-regulating and managing their practice. They don't need the teacher to guide them. They know what tools to use they know what strategies to use and they're collaborating appropriately with each other and they're getting it on and they're creating meaning because they're driving the practice. I've seen it in a myriad of different settings and it's so beautiful to watch because they're driving the learning by making choices, collaborating authentically. And I just love that they're decision-making. And why is it that we lose this sense of wonder and awe oftentimes in upper primary grades? That always um, perplexes me because isn't this the best way to teach? And as a teacher in public or state schools, um, private and international schools, I've pretty much seen it all. Um, the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. And in private and international schools, we have ample freedom to operate our classrooms, right? 
Um, some might say almost too much leniency at times um, where we're trying to calibrate quality control. While in public or state schools, the level of control can be so intense that the PYP program is barely visible. And then there's somewhere halfway in between. So if I'm in these conditions, the question that lingers is despite the physical space, how do we build up learner independence? And a big part of building young independent thinkers who can solve problems and, and you know, resolve conflict on their own is by giving them the space to do it. And we've heard this a thousand times. It's nothing new. So why is it not done? And I think it's because many people struggle with how to make it happen in their context. And my personal opinion is that educators need to heavily model the process that they expect their learners to replicate. This sounds like second nature, but you'd be surprised at how many teachers that I've observed expect their learners to complete a process that has not been properly modeled. And then they get angry or frustrated at their learners for not achieving the learning objective. And for this to turn around, Teachers need to heavily model the process of thinking with their learners. And it sounds intuitive, but when time gets, you know, cut short because we've over um, talked in certain areas or explored a little too long, the first thing that is cut is modeling. We just rush to get our learners to finish, you know, a product by completing an arbitrary activity to show that we've quote unquote, covered the topic. And we have something for our grade book. And for this reason, many of our learners who, you know, learn the ATL and the learner profile attributes cannot do them on their own because they've learned them. They haven't applied them. And they simply didn't have enough guidance and practice to reside into their long-term memory. So let's focus on modeling the process. Right. Um, we are going through the process of trying to connect this process of the physical space, the independent thinking. And we do that through modeling. And I personally believe that it's almost like a masterclass on how to establish authentic learning environments that reflect the elements of the PYP while supporting independent thinking. And this process is filled with tried and true strategies that work. I've used many of them as a teacher, as a coordinator, as a trainer for the IB. And the ideas and strategies in this series are aligned with the PYP philosophy and approaches to teaching and learning. But I want to be clear, they do not provide a recipe for how to be successful for your verification or evaluation visits, okay? I'm not setting you up for that because that would be the program standards and practices. This is just good teaching practice. Yes, can they be emulated in the program standards and practices, but just having a beautiful classroom or learner-centered teaching, which is 
a big bulk of the program standards practices does not mean that you're going to pass your verification or evaluation visit, okay? Um, because um, there are other considerations that we're not going to go into in this series. But also, this series represents my personal thoughts and feelings and experiences, because that's all I can speak to, right? And being human, I may miss some opportunities that I didn't consider fully. And that's where you come in. I want your feedback. I want your suggestions. I want you to post on Twitter. I want you to post on LinkedIn. Ideas that you are listening to that resonate, but then you're like, mm, Lou, you can extend this. Please tell me because I'm only human and I'm creating this all by myself. So I might not necessarily see a broader vision like you can. And before beginning this series, I went onto social media and asked um, fellow PYP educators, uh, what would you like to learn more about? Um, and in response to their wonderings, um, the, I've basically crafted podcast episodes to be shaped by these questions that these teachers have posed and hopes to answer them. Ugh, it was so helpful. And I don't know why, once again, co-creation of the learning experience. I, I talk about this all the time and I'm like, why haven't I done this this whole time? Asking you, the learner um, or co-learner, because we're in this process together of asking you, what do you want to know? And then crafting the learning experience around it. And so that's exactly what I've done. I've taken all of these questions and some of you, oh, bless you, um, gave me so many um, multifaceted questions that I kind of broke them up and moved them around um, in this series. And the series went from like, I think like six episodes to like 13 because it was just so rich and powerful. And I just can't wait to delve in. Isn't that the best? And that's what we're talking about. You're going to find that as you give practice to your learners and license for them to co-create with you, it becomes a better experience because they pose ideas and questions that you had not even considered. And as a result, you're creating what's called a culturally responsive classroom because you're not looking at it just from your viewpoint from your background. You're considering every experience that's happened in the room and how, how our cultural experiences um, shape our beliefs and values, our perspectives and all of that. But that also shapes what we wanna learn and how we wanna learn it. So let's take a journey through crafting thoughtful and meaningful walls in our uh, PYP schools and also creating independent thinkers. I so cannot wait um, to share this with you. Along the way, I might have to drop in some ideas that I've learned from Misty because that also goes perfectly with this series. So come along with me, my friends, and let's have some fun.